Lots of organizations are making commitments around sustainability today, which is a great thing. But some of them are making more progress at a much faster rate than others. And so what separates those leaders from the laggards? Today, we're going to find out. Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm here with our producer, Rebecca Charbowski. Hi, Chris. Hey, Rebecca. Can you tell everybody about our guest today? I sure can. Kara Pecknold is a vice president of regenerative design at Frog, which is a mouthful. (laughs) She uh, consults with organizations around the world to help them develop circular business models. And we're going to get into more about what that means in your conversation. She's so talented. Some people call her the Swiss army knife because she has access to lots of skills as a designer, a researcher, and a consultant. And we got to talk to her about a lot of interesting things, especially work that she did in Rwanda, which ended up being part of a case study in IDEO's Human-Centered Design Toolkit, Mm -hmm. which is very cool. And that led her down this path of getting into regenerative design. This was such an interesting conversation about a a topic Mm -hmm. that we learned a lot about talking to Kara. We'd really love to ask our listeners to share this episode with a friend or a colleague, especially if it's a topic they want to learn more about. Welcome to Work Better, Kara. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to hear more from you. So maybe we could start with you just telling our listeners a little bit about Uh, What is FROG, and what does a vice president of regenerative design do at FROG? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, FROG is uh, a 50-plus-year-old company, uh, started in Germany, but over the years we've changed and transformed, and today we are the global creative consultancy, which is part of Capgemini Invent, and I think is an organization where we started is probably best well known for industrial design. Mm -hmm. But as we look at this new generation and this new era of frog, we are seeing that we are people who are fusing art and science. We are fusing technical solutions as well as creative solutions. And as a VP of regenerative design, I'm really looking at how do we bring a new future of sustainability in the design space for our clients uh, and to improve the world for both people and planet. So, I'm really interested in how you found your way into this kind of work. And you have a story about work that you did in Rwanda some time ago that was really kind of a formative moment for you. Can you tell us more about that? Happy to. When I was in graduate school, this is how far back it goes, I was studying design and working on my Mm -hmm. master's. And I really was interested in how do we communicate sustainability? And nobody wanted to hire anybody in the communication design space at that time. It wasn't a topic. It was kind of an uncomfortable discussion. But Mm -hmm. I had a chance to do an applied learning experience in Rwanda, which seems like a very strange place to go, I'm sure, for, for this type of work. But the focus was on sustainable development. And so that opportunity opened me up to a real sustainability challenge, which is a plant, an invasive species that is growing in the lakes and the rivers in Mm -hmm. Rwanda, all through the Nile Basin. Uh, And in that reality, there are women and communities of women who are extracting that plant, drying it out, turning it into a weaving fiber that then they create products that they can sell. And so... What I realized was communication was not necessarily just with language 
and communication uh, was different when you were talking about sustainability and we needed to figure out how to get around that and how to encourage people to think more sustainably. So I worked in Rwanda with these women to help them rethink how they positioned their product because it was different from all the other weaving collaboratives that were working on this type of uh, craft making. Mm -hmm. And we had the opportunity to kind of create a new business narrative for them that was really focused on how they were taking that plant out of the rivers and lakes which was killing off fish and drying up lakes and rivers, right. turning that fiber into something that they could sell and, and using sort of a renewable resource, if you will, because they were out of luck uh, in Rwanda to be able to get rid of this plant in any way because it was so invasive. Wow. Uh, so this was a really neat opportunity for me to start thinking about design as something that had circularity, although that word was not being used at the time. Uh, it was starting to think about how could this renewable plant that was a problem be turned into an opportunity. As you've talked about that, you've used different phrases that we hear around a lot more today about sustainable design or regenerative design or circular design. Are these things different or are they all the same? I think it probably depends who you talk to. Okay. I know that words are really important in the world and how we define them. It's probably pretty critical. I think for me, often what I talk about, circularity for me can be applied to an economy. It can be applied to design. At the basic level, it's about not it's about trying to eliminate waste and trying to keep products looped in and continuously used, whether that's the material that they're made of or that we maybe even just love them longer and we keep them longer. Mm-hmm. I think for me, sustainability is a next layer of conversation that is a popular word, a popular term that most people can get their heads wrapped around. But I often think about it in a two by two matrix. If I put sustainability at the at the crux, at the very intersection there, sustainability is that we're meeting zero, we're not going below, we're not going above in improving, or we're not doing business as usual. The idea that we would just stay there is we're trying our best and we're not achieving it. So I think our ambition needs to be higher, which is why I start to use words like regenerative, because for me, then it becomes a new narrative of being nature positive, not just sustaining nature, but actually working alongside nature, which can take care of itself, quite frankly, without us. It's just that we choose to not take care of it so that it can take care of us. Um, And so I think for me, that's where I've started to differentiate my language ambitiously perhaps, but because I actually think we need to have a higher vision of what our role and responsibility will be as designers, as creatives in the world. So that's how I differentiate those words and and use them uh, in my day-to-day discussions. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to think about it in that way. Mm -hmm. And another thing that, you know, I think a lot of people maybe don't think much about just yet is it feels like there are, you know, planet issues that we're all trying to work to help mitigate the impact of climate change. And then there's like people issues and social responsibility. And we tend to think about those things as different. But you really had some personal experiences that made you start thinking about uh, things like inclusion and sustainability in a different way. I think you took a little tumble on the streets in Munich and that that got you thinking. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I I did take a tumble. I fell on the streets of Munich uh, one evening. I didn't see a brick on the side of the road during around a construction zone and broke my leg, uh, dislocated the ankle, had to have surgery, all of those lovely things that you never want to have happen. Ow. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I've had to go through a two month recovery process. I, I would say I'm still in a recovery process because you kind of have to relearn how to walk. Mm. But what that woke me up to or helped me to very much realize that maybe you think about in theory, but don't have it in practice is how much of our world is not designed for everybody and not designed to be accessible to all. And, right. and living in Munich, there are streets that have cobblestone and it's charming and beautiful, but can be a little more challenging to get around on. And so what I realized though, is all my idealism perhaps around sustainable packaging and sustainable purchases and all those things, when you are limited, sometimes those things are equally inaccessible. And so basically just getting food delivered to my door meant, mm. you know, at the time they came in a lot of extra packaging as an example, Sure, uh, meant at certain yeah. times I took the, the path of least resistance for what I was trying to get to, which isn't always the most sustainable choice. Right. So for me, that was like sort of this wake up call of, of how far reaching sustainability I think can be when we think about it being available, not just for people who can afford a sustainable something, whatever that may be, mm -hmm. uh, and, and really reimagining it, that it, it reaches all levels of society. And, and, and to me, that is a social dynamic, not just an environmental dynamic when we're talking about sustainability. So these things really, we do need to think about them together. Yeah. Sometimes when I hear conversations about circular models or regenerative models, they can feel aspirational. Yeah. You know, like, oh, it's a great idea, but is it really attainable? Getting to net positive, is that really an attainable thing? And, and you use this phrase, the next economy organization. You talk about next economy organizations. Can you explain what that is and, mm -hmm. and is it attainable? Yeah, uh, I hope so. Uh, it may be, it may sound aspirational. I, I was reading, maybe I'll build on it. I was reading a book recently, uh, Earth for All, which is a 50th, uh, a 50 years after the limits to growth uh, out of the Club of Rome. Danella Meadows wrote that original one. Okay. And I like how they're reframing it even better. I think it's a well-being economy. Because the next economy can have any narrative you want. Interesting. But I, I'm starting to realize even that might not be adequate. So when I speak of next economy, I'm including that well-being. I just didn't use that word. I think a, a next economy is reimagining how people work, mm. what people work on, the types of uh, ways of looking at resources that we need to use, the way we share resources. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I hear you, it can sound very aspirational and maybe a little bit like we're all sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya. Right. But right. I, like, I like to imagine again a vision where uh, some of what we've been told is the way that business ought to operate or society ought to operate. Some of those things, we don't have to take them as givens. And I think that's what COVID has taught us is that some of the normatives that we thought were the truth or thought they were the way we ought to live, we had to pivot. We had to change and there was enough crises. And I think we're in that moment, again, with different reasons, with floods, fires, you name it. Mm -hmm. uh, these types of things are really having us to rethink what we need in life. Sure, absolutely. And that is an aspirational claim. I absolutely realize that I'm making it. But what I'm starting to see in the world is that the next generation of talent who will do and deliver work in this next economy are hungry for this. They're hungry for purpose, for meaning. They're hungry to make sure that the things that they work on make an impact. Mm -hmm. And 
I believe that that's something we should help if we're going to leave a legacy is the more senior category of the ecosystem uh, in the business world today. I believe we have an opportunity to live, leave them something better than what we, you know, what we see today. Right. Mm-hmm. I love the term well-being, and I have to admit, when we think about our goals, we frame them by saying that we're working toward better future right. for the well-being of people and the planet, because we also believe the two go hand in hand. So um, even though it might sound a little aspirational, I think we absolutely do have to work in that direction. So I'm with you on that one. Absolutely. <laughs> So you've created some new business models that are more focused on sustainability or regeneration. And can you talk about some of that work that you've done? Yeah, some of it we can't share. We can't say who we did it for out of respect to that company. But I think I can give you some themes that we're seeing that we have been touching on. And so, you know, a lot of what I've had the chance to work on fits many, many times into sort of the energy sector. Mm-hmm. We're seeing how do we bring solar energy to the household in a more affordable way? Right. So looking at renewable energy, which means there's a new business model of how we exchange energy. And in this case, uh, we were working with a client that really wanted to get to a market that was unreached by clean energy mm-hmm. and making it more affordable. So a lot of times when we see solar home systems, either they're highly subsidized or they're very, let's say in parts of the world where it's very easy to put a solar panel on your roof. Sure. Uh, we are talking about places where it's not so easy mm-hmm. uh, and where, how do we make sure that the many get access to that type of energy? So that's an example where, That's the product that had to be designed, but the business model around it equally had to shift because it would have to look very differently at how you distributed this type of product. It had to look at who was the sales team that would, you know, execute, who would install this. That was a whole new type of uh, a model for this organization that they hadn't touched before. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, a, a clean energy story, I would say, is one way of reshaping a business model through who sells it, who installs it, and what are the benefits, and how do I return the product? How do I fix the product? Right. All of that was a was a new shape uh, to the way that we could deliver a new service into the world. Yeah. So you're working with a lot of big global organizations. Yeah. I would also imagine there's like a different kind of a wide range of commitment and engagement in this kind of work that maybe some are really wanting to be transformative and and others, you know, are are holding back. Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts about what is it about some companies or some leaders that enable them to move faster on this kind of transformation? Do you see like patterns? Yeah, it's a great question. I find there's a few things at play. I think for some leaders, if they're in a publicly traded company versus a privately held company, you see different freedoms to move depending on the nature of the investment uh, makeup that they have. So I think a lot of what I see is when a company has maybe less shareholders um, or, or a different kind of shareholder makeup, in many cases, it gives them a different kind of freedom to act. Um, And unless that, publicly traded company has a very cohesive setup that enables freedom of action in a way towards some of these things, then I see that folks have some ability to move more flexibly. So that's a pattern I'm seeing is how much freedom 
a team might be given within a company, depending on where they sit. I think the second thing that I'm seeing is often a, a leader who moves fast has had their own personal epiphany about the world. Okay. And so I often yeah. call this kind of a spiritual transformation. Mm. I see leaders who move the needle have had something much deeper than the facts given to them. So it's not enough to see the data on a page. Right. It's not enough. There's something emotional that's triggering them. And that could be that their child came to them and said, you know, mom, dad, what are you doing? Right. Making X or making Y, you know, why, why are you making this thing in the world? Because the children are challenging us. Um, or it could be something even, you know, different, a book they read, a podcast they heard, an experience they had on a travel or a trip. They've lived through a hurricane or a flood. Or, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think for me, there's those are the two big patterns I see is how much freedom a leader is given, depending on the, in, the structure in which they find themselves, what they have to lead with the number of stakeholders around them. Mm -hmm. And then the second would be this sort of personal spiritual epiphany, transformation, whatever you want to, to label it. I think I'm seeing that that is doing something different in the world and gives them a resilience, a grit, if I can use, that, that really keeps them pushing the boundaries within their organization. You know, I can imagine, even with that kind of epiphany moment, that making change can cause some angst or fear. I mean, we, we love to talk in the design world about fail fast and failure is good, and, but it also feels like in reality, like we're all a little nervous <laughs> about failing. And so yeah. how do you advise leaders that you're working with to kind of move beyond that, that angst or fear of starting to do something new? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, there's many layers of where you fail. So I would never tell a leader to disrupt everything and right. to start over with everything. A lot of times what we talk about, which Sometimes work and sometimes don't, but we, we talk a lot about taking smaller steps in pilots. So taking something littler and not so huge and, and upsetting, that's some of the stuff we're trying to carve out or give opportunity or give space to. Um, I do think that it is a, you know, an opportunity in many ways to follow pre-prescribed frameworks mm -hmm. so that the risk you're taking is not a risk that's on your own. So I often talk about things recently launched the TNFD, which gives, you know, nat nature's disclosure, which you could say, like, I've got to start disclosing something different than just my financials. And, and while that can seem, oh, that's a risky thing or that feels intense, too, I think at least if we're all in it together, it's a different kind of structure that isn't about failing. So I it's not easy to take a risk. We see companies who do step out on a ledge and try to do new things, try to make new claims. But I, I do feel there is this, this, let's say, highly judgmental culture we, we are living in. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, I can't tell everybody not to be judgmental, but I think we need to realize there are very small things that are happening under the surface that we don't see every day because maybe they're not being newsworthy and they're not getting all the attention. Mm -hmm. The hard thing for leaders today, back to where do they sit, what kind of organization are they in, is whose criteria are they ju being judged against? And so to get over fears of failure, I back to my original statement, try something that's not so huge, something that is a lower risk, but at least gives you a sense of confidence that if that, if we can get through that, we might get through the next one. And I liken it to, I would never tell somebody to go run a full marathon. Mm -hmm. 
if you hadn't trained, right. if you hadn't practiced, if you hadn't taken some logical steps to strengthen yourself and strengthen the muscle right. to be able to endure that long. And I think this is, although we don't have a lot of time to pivot our actions, it is a long game. It is not everything is going to happen at speed and at the quickest thing. And I think when we think about failure, we think in different terms around time. And if we can think of we have a bit of space to breathe, let's try some things that are easily achievable, ones that will help us move the needle forward. Um, it doesn't work every time for every single organization. But when I see people feel like they can own that as opposed to feeling like that is an imposed thing upon them, it really does change the dynamic of how they work with their teams. Yeah. And I think little steps do matter in this effort uh, and we just don't always acknowledge them. So they seem too small maybe to make the, the front page of the news. <laughs> well, I, I really like the marathon analogy and I know sometimes it gets overused a little bit, but when you think about it, I mean, you really, you don't get off the couch and just start running 20 plus miles. Like you have to do a, a two mile or three mile run and, and build up before you can even do a half marathon, you know? So I think it, it really is a useful analogy when you're talking about how do you embrace this kind of change? Yeah. So I want to do a pivot a little bit because you were at Cannes recently at the uh, International um, Creativity Festival, which I think has been running for what, 70 plus years? Yep. I tend to think about whenever I hear the word can, I always think about the film festival and beautiful people and celebrities and glamour and stuff. But but in this conversation that you were having with people about creativity, you said that there were some very different kinds of conversations going on there. And I'd love if you could just talk about what were some of the trends people were talking about when they were there. Yeah, I, I think there was an interesting undercurrent pulse, let's put it that way, that was really mm -hmm. talking about the narrative of, you know, what are we marketing to and marketing for in the future? And so some of the conversations we were able to have are maybe different kinds of campaigns that uh, we look at differently. So, for example, the UN SDG Action Campaign. Can you tell we us were, what the United Nations SDGs are? Yeah. The UN has a framework called the Sustainable Development Goals. These are 17 key goals that all countries, country leaders have come together. They've come to agree that these are things that we need to focus on in order to have that well-being economy we were discussing earlier. So things like, you know, zero hunger, things like giving access to education to everyone, inclusivity, making sure we take care of infrastructure globally. Uh, and so leveling out the playing fields so that everyone can have this well-being existence. Um, so that's what those are all about and advocating for at a governmental level. Perfect. Okay. And so we were able to talk about what does it mean to in, ignite people towards action and, and action that really makes a difference and changes. So this is a topic not about, let's say, maybe consumption, it's an action towards action for the world and for the planet and to meet the goals of the SDGs. Mm -hmm. I think we talked uh, a lot about the idea of what is, you know, sort of the future of design. We've talked about what is the future of creativity. And I think there's a real hunger. What I was hearing and, and feeling from many folks was there's a real hunger for a new type of uh, design award or creativity award. Uh, while I was there, it's it's notable, I think, that Patagonia won the the Lionheart, sort of the Lifetime Achievement Award, or Yvonne Schwinnard in 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 honor of Patagonia. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something to be said about this shifting narrative of what do we award and reward. Uh, mm -hmm. That I think the needle is shifting, 
and we can see a new a new narrative emerging with with what people are hungry to see awarded and given credence and credibility. Yeah. So, yeah, this is an interesting moment, I think, for the festival and to see folks. Maybe it wasn't always all glamorous. There was definitely some lovely, beautiful moments. But I think some of the conversation we were trying to have was what's the tension between delivering something for the end of the month versus we are living in a state where it feels like we might be at the end of the world. And somewhere in between those two domains, we need to figure out how how can we actually create things of value and of meaning, still enlightened by beauty and, and loveliness, because I think that is an important part to our human condition. Uh, but what does that look like and what is that tension? So I would argue it is a bit of a tension and there is lots of different opinions and, and thoughts around this. But what I found interesting is there were many folks willing to have a conversation within that tension. So, Kara, before I leave you today, there's a question that we've been asking all of our guests this season about someone or something that you feel has made a really positive impact on people or the planet. And I know there's a lot of them, so it might be hard to kind of distill it down to one, but I'd really appreciate hearing for you what things really you think have made an impact. Yeah, I think some of the things that I, that come to mind for me are people I've met in the last year, specifically, either by reading their work, so I feel I've met them, or I've actually met them in person. So, yeah, people like Bill McDonough developed the Cradle mm, to Cradle yeah, certification sure. and storyline. We all we have all heard of him. Having you know, getting to spend a day with him and just receiving wisdom from him. I think that has set a tone for the design community that I I think we still need. We still need that narrative. I think about people like Nicole Miller, who's at Biomimicry 3.8, who has really helped to be a collaborator for me. She is working with me to help build kind of a Kickstarter project that Frog and Biomimicry can do together around nature and how do we bring organizations to a place where they invite nature to the table in more of their product services and organizational structures. Interesting. I think about you know, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's written Braiding Sweetgrass, um, someone who's helping to remind us that the poetry in the world is really important and indigenous and generational wisdom is really important. Um, and, and that mindfulness that she brings to the conversation. Uh, and maybe last, I would think about, you know, my dear friend, Joe Isles, who's at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who's the circular design lead. And has been just such a great supporter of the the narrative around what it means for the design community to shift that narrative. And I'm sure there are many more I could say, but these are people yeah. who I've actually met, who I actually see them advocating and, you know, keeping a resilience about the narrative, even though maybe they are challenged in some cases to bring those to the table, but they are definitely people who have influenced me. And therefore, I think they have influenced uh, others as well. Well, those are some really great examples, and I, I'm just, I'm a little jealous, I got to admit, <laughs> like you, you've had some chance to interact with some really interesting people, so that's great. And uh, Kara, I just want to say uh, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. I've learned a lot, and thank you so much for joining us at Work Better today. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and and talk about these types of topics with you. So thank you. Great. Thanks. Steelcase is dedicated to creating products that help you reach your sustainability goals. 
Now it's easier than ever to make choices that are better for the planet. To explore solutions that help reduce your environmental impact, visit steelcase.com slash WB Sustainability. Thank you for being here with us. Rebecca, what's up for next week? Oh, next week, we talk to Poonam Beer Katsuri. Poonam founded a company called The Daily Dump in India. I love it. Yes, they design beautiful handcrafted composting containers. And she tells us why we need a little more foolishness in business. She also talks about why design can change our mindset and why she deliberately decided not to make her company a nonprofit. It's a great conversation, Mm -hmm. and we really hope you'll join us for that one. If you enjoyed this conversation today, would you share this podcast with a friend or a colleague? And visit us at steelcase.com slash research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research insights and design ideas delivered to your inbox. Thanks again for being here, and we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better Podcasts possible. Creative Art Direction is by Aaron Ellison. Editing and Sound Mixing by Soundpost Studios. Technical Support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. And Digital Publishing by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.